This episode of Ghost Stories is brought to you by Satrix, the leading provider of index tracking solutions in South Africa and a proud partner of Ghostmail. With no minimums and easy, low-cost access to local and global products via the Satrix Now online investment platform, everyone can own the market. Visit satrix.co.za for more information. Welcome to this episode of the Ghost Stories podcast. It's always really interesting to engage with the team from Satrix. We always learn so much about the markets, definitely not just about how to use ETFs in them, but actually a lot of really cool broader market concepts as well. And those of you who have been carefully reading your ghost mail, which I hope is everyone listening to this, will have noticed a number of Satrix articles over the past few months. And Nico Katzka, you are one of our prolific writers here. Uh, from Satrix. You've been on Ghost Stories before. You've written in Ghost Mail before. Some really interesting stuff. Some quite, I would say, not necessarily controversial, but maybe just a bit unusual uh, in your approach to certain things like the RAND hedging. And we'll touch on that a little bit today. And I think today we'll also just have a broader conversation about local versus offshore, which is definitely one of the most topical points for South Africans, certainly given the current state of load shedding. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. I feel like I'm part of the furniture, as you mentioned. I've uh, written one or two articles and I've uh, enjoyed my time on your podcast. So thanks for having me again. Yeah, speaking of furniture, mine has uh, mostly arrived now. I moved house recently. I've been dealing with really tough echoes and stuff for podcasts. So hopefully that's behind me now. So yes, you're <laughs> welcome to be firmly part of the furniture. My life is all about new furniture at the moment with a house move. So I think, Nico, let's get into it. And I do just want to touch on, you know, the article that you recently wrote in Ghost Mail. It talked about RAND hedging. It had some really cool stuff in there around understanding volatility, understanding correlations. I think before we get into some of those technical points, I just want to flag them because they're coming up in this podcast. And for those listening, stick around. You're going to learn a lot. But I think if we go, you know, very high level, local versus offshore, why is that conversation so important for South Africans? So, yeah, it's a great question. It's such an emotive topic. You know, you you always get the um, the sense that people, what people fear the most is that the rand blows out, you know, goes to 50 rand to the dollar. The rand that you have in your pocket is worth nothing. And so you end up with your life savings completely eroded through some event that triggers the rand to, to lose a lot of ground. But what is interesting is that the rand has actually been quite robust over the years. You know, even, even if you think since, since Russia invaded Ukraine and all the dislocation we've seen in markets, the rise of inflation and all the accompanying uh, volatility and uncertainty, the RAND has actually kept up quite quite well. Um, you know, there will obviously be those that, that argue that's not the case. But certainly, if you look at other emerging market uh, currencies like the, the Lira or the Brazilian Real, you've seen periods of extreme blowouts. You've not really seen that with the RAND. So there's something about the RAND that actually makes it uh, boys up the value of the RAND. And we should take comfort from the fact that we have a an independent reserve bank that has acted when they should act. And that also has not caved to the pressure of, of applying uh, currency controls or, or capital movement flow controls. And so all of this has actually uh, played a, a quite a quite a big role in meaning that the RAND is considered quite liquid, as well as a, a as an investment vehicle. South Africa remains quite attractive from a global perspective because we don't apply unnecessary pressures on our local currency. So all of that taken into account actually means the RAND has not seen periods of extreme blowout. Um, and we should take comfort from that. We absolutely should. It actually reminds me of someone I used to play tennis with in my varsity years. I'll never forget. He, he had this great quip where he said, you know, this guy has moments of brilliance, but terrible quarters of an hour. And it actually works a little bit like that in South Africa, right? We have pockets of excellence, like some of our financial institutions. And then overall, we know what the broader macroeconomic story is. There's really no point in rehashing that. 
And what is interesting is I've seen some commentary lately that, you know, international flows into our bonds not quite coming through the way we would necessarily hope. I'm not sure if that's something you specifically look at from a Satrix perspective, but I guess load shedding, all of this kind of stuff is starting to bite at some point and it means the RAND is lagging its peers. So that makes the local versus offshore point even more important because it does seem like we are having a tough time of things at the moment, even on a global stage by other emerging market standards. I, I would agree with that. I think there is, though, a pervasive narrative that taking your money offshore is absolutely necessary and should be done at all costs. I don't agree with that. I think there is costly ways of taking your money offshore, and there's more sensible ways of doing that. Um, also, you know, you mentioned uh, the local economy and local companies. Um, you know, local companies and sectors are certainly under pressure from all sides, uh, and our small economy faces some serious headwinds. Now, this is true, but I do think we need to remember that there are several globally competitive companies on our exchange. You know, this includes luxury goods maker like Richmond or tech exposure through Naspers and various other leading retailer brands, as well as some some really good uh, global resource companies. So I, I certainly wouldn't think that taking your money offshore at all costs is, is necessarily something you must consider. And, and, you know, in fact, many have pointed to long-term opportunities of our listed companies, given their current attractive valuations. So you've mentioned that currently some, some companies in South Africa certainly look very attractive from a, a valuation perspective. I think the current price earnings ratio of our local index is about 10.8 versus the long-term average of just over 15. So that means you, you have quite a, you know, a lot of that uncertainty and that pain is already priced in. So I've seen a lot of analysts point to the fact that there's some long-term investment opportunities. That being said, though, I, I would agree, and I, I certainly think you have to consider moving some part of your portfolio offshore. If you're invested in a unit trust, a lot of your uh, unit trust funds in South Africa do or have, over the last year specifically, increased their foreign exposure up to the limit. I think it's 45%. So there is certainly already some uh, global exposure in your uh, locally invested portfolios. And added to that, you know, the local exchanges or the local indices, look at, for example, your all share index, about 70% of your earnings comes from offshore. So certainly you do get a lot of offshore exposure already. And so, you know, if you invest locally, at least you're saving a lot of costs and hassle when it comes to expatriating your money offshore and moving it back and all of the costs and, and, and exchange control costs that, that you would face. Otherwise, you actually get a lot of local global exposure. So I, I would recommend doing doing your homework in terms of knowing what you're already invested in, what type of exposure you're already getting, and then asking yourself the question, am I sufficiently diversified from a local perspective? Certainly, you don't want to hold only SA Inc. stocks or uh, have, have the dominant part of your portfolio be only SA Inc. You definitely want to get that global exposure into your portfolio. Uh, in terms of bonds, what you've mentioned, it's a very interesting point that you raise and, and, and something you know that, that we've certainly debated internally is our local yields are extremely attractive. Now, if you look at from a global perspective where you are getting yields, you know, for the better part of a decade, uh, there's been this complete suppression of global yields. Central banks have kept interest rates artificially low. And so you saw global bond yields at near zero or even negative territory for the better part of the last decade. Um, in South Africa, we've never had that problem, right? We've had quite high real yields. And so your safer bond investment type investment vehicles have actually delivered quite nice returns over time. What you're seeing currently is that your global bonds are starting to increase in the, the yield that they're paying investors. So remember with a bond, you're, you're taking far less risk 
It's not zero risk, as some textbooks might might have you believe, but you're taking far less risk uh, and you're getting a, a meaningful return currently. And if you look at that, you know, it's starting to to, to become quite a quite an attractive uh, investment alternative. And so a lot of your listeners might ask, well, you know, how do I access bond portfolios? Well, there are locally traded ETFs that offer both local bond yields uh, in those portfolios as well as global. And you can, for example, access a locally listed global bond feeder ETF that holds a diversified portfolio of global bonds, and you pay a TER of 0.4%. Now, these are fantastic investment vehicles that offer some upside uh, you know, today compared to, to a few years ago, but also great rand hedge uh, baked into that as well. Absolutely. There is a lot of really interesting stuff in there. You know, my theory is always that you can lose money on any investment or make money on any investment. It all comes down to when you bought the thing and why you bought it. So a good recent example is Silicon Valley Bank, which basically went bust by buying US treasuries at the wrong price <laughs> and then having a liquidity problem. I mean, that's incredible, right? Because US treasuries are the risk-free investment, only if you hold it to maturity, of course, not if you are planning to mark to market the thing and then need to sell it. So it's, it's really important, I think, for investors to understand, you know, things are usually not as bad or as good as they seem. You see that a lot in the markets as well. People assume that everything offshore is fantastic. They do this when they immigrate as well. It's all perfect there. Everything is wonderful. Yes, some things might be better. Some things are probably worse. It's not different in markets. It really doesn't help. You know, if you can buy a brilliant South African company on a low multiple with dependable cash flows and a moat in its market, that is a better buy than going and piling into a US tech firm at a completely absurd valuation. And this is a lesson that investors learn usually the hard way. You know, how on earth did I lose money in, you know, fill in the blank, big global company but my friend next to me has had great returns from this JC listed group that I've never heard of. And I think what's great with you know the approach that you take in, in answering these sort of questions is it's a very balanced, very measured view. I do find on Twitter there are a lot of voices where they have a view because it financially helps them to have that view. You know, If people are trying to sell you only offshore products, guess what? They are going to remind you day in and day out that South Africa is completely useless. They will specifically ignore stuff like Chinese commodity demand and what that means for our economy. Similarly, people who are only selling local products will try and you know, beat the South African drum at all costs, even when actually offshore exposure makes a lot of sense. So I think investors need to just keep their wits about them and just you know, maintain that healthy amount of skepticism and cynicism, but just common sense, just absolutely common sense. You wouldn't just go and buy any old asset at any old price, so don't do it offshore just because it's offshore. Look, there's no value in just investing offshore for the sake of it. And that, that's why I mentioned earlier, taking your money offshore at all costs is not a sensible investment uh, decision to make. You might actually end up losing a lot of money by going offshore. And to your point, then you ask yourself, well, why did I lose money? These are great companies. Well, if you buy a great company at a very high price, that is a terrible investment, right? So you have to consider things like valuations as well. Now, on that valuation point, you know, and you, you do see a lot of analysts pointing to, for example, China's re-emergence. Now, that's a fascinating proposition, right? Because China is re-emerging out of a self-induced slumber, a, a sort of economy-wide uh, lockdown uh, that you saw, and a very aggressive one at that. And so a lot of analysts are actually saying, well, China is going to uh, emerge with the sense of revenge spending, which is a very interesting concept. You know, you, you come out of your uh, lockdown period of extended lockdown and you've, you have all this pent up demand that you now want to spend at all costs. So what you're seeing is that a lot of, for example, luxury goods brands are actually coming to the fore and, and showing excellent earnings uh, as a result on the back of 
this revenge spending that we're seeing in China. I'm thinking, you know, your 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 favorite uh, clothing brand, uh, Louis Vuitton, actually came out and they're the first European company to breach the $500 billion market cap now this week. So certainly we're seeing some of that pent up demand coming through. But then you have to start asking yourself, okay, but what type of China is going to emerge, right? Because, and what opportunities do they do they present? Um, you know, just the fact that China is emerging uh, doesn't doesn't quite explain to you the full extent of the investment potential that you have in that economy. Um, some are pointing to the fact that, well, uh, innovation is stifled in a centralized economy. So I certainly wouldn't write off the US, right? And a lot of people are saying the US is expensive and you should rather look to China. Their valuations are cheaper and they're emerging. Yes, but what type of China is emerging, right? And what investment opportunities are there? So these are the type of questions you have to actually ask yourself. Things aren't typically as simple as they might seem at the surface. And so some analysts are saying the US is expensive, trading at very high uh, multiples. I mean, do you want to bet against an economy that has shown time and again the potential for being innovative and finding solutions that we didn't even know had a, you know, we had a problem and they find a solution to that problem. They identify the problem and the solution. So my point is just with, with all this, it seems very confusing. Where do you put your money? And I think the answer for that is always ensure that you are well diversified. Hold some money locally, hold some money offshore. But one thing that you can be certain is try to limit costs. Know what you pay. That is an absolute certainty. You can diversify across risks because there's going to be times where you're right. There's going to be times where you're wrong. But what you want to do is you want to diversify so that you're not fully right or fully wrong, but on balance that you are getting exposure to assets that grow over time, but control that which you can control. And what you can control is cost and lack of diversification. And that's where, for example, ETFs come in as a great investment vehicle that offer, offer benefits on both sides, well diversified, low cost, and you can actually build a portfolio, global portfolio, uh, invested in RANDs using different type of building blocks that offer different type of investment exposures. Yeah, I don't know about Louis Vuitton is my favorite clothing brand. Eh, Nick? I'm more likely to own the stock one day maybe than some of the, the products. It's quite interesting in that luxury space. I mean, I'll spend literally you know 30 seconds on it because I don't want to derail us. But my favorite in that space is definitely Ferrari because I think it's the only list, uh, the only luxury business where the product offers significantly more utility than a cheaper competitor or, or cheaper alternative because they're not really competitors so what i mean by that is you know a handbag is a handbag you're buying the super duper expensive family hatchback priced handbag purely because of the brand it doesn't do anything better than a cheap handbag it's just the brand whereas on some luxury goods they are genuinely objectively better and the only one i can really think of that fits into that is ferrari actually a ferrari is just objectively better than a cheap car if you've ever driven one you know even if it belongs to a friend which i was lucky enough to do then you'll know that so luxury is an interesting one and it's been a big theme in the market uh, exactly for the reason of sort of china re-emerging but guess what those luxury valuations will now be pushed up to a point where at some stage someone is going to eventually say oh okay it's time for me to buy into the story they will buy right at the top and they will have the joy of losing 20 percent of their money on a company like LVMH, which is now all over the headlines for being so successful. I mean, welcome to investing, right? That's how it works with single stock exposure. Absolutely. And that that's my point, right? Is today LVMH or Louis Vuitton looks looks very attractive because China is emerging. But then tomorrow it might, you know, in hindsight, you might go, yes, China emerged. They had some revenge spending, but that that would that necessarily had to run out of steam. Although I must say some of some of your listeners might completely disagree with your statements on that a Louis Vuitton handbag gives you uh, utility other than just, you know, handbag is not a handbag. There might be some street cred that you gain that might be useful for you if you have a Louis Vuitton bag. 
so just just on that point. No, that is true. Or negative street cred, depending on the kind of people you you're dealing with. I mean, it's oh, it's interesting. Like humanity is an interesting thing, and of course, these companies are there to serve a whole variety of needs and wants. And at the end of the day, personal preferences. I mean, that's the world of consumers, right? We all like different things. If I could afford a Ferrari, I would have one. I wouldn't buy the bag ever. And that's just because I'm not the target market for it. So that's why you can go and invest in businesses that are actually servicing clients that are not you. It's one of the really cool things about investing, I think, is you can go and own a piece of a company that does something that you'll never be a customer of. And yet you can be on the receiving end of those dividends. It's just a, it's just a lovely thing in the market. I just want to move us along from some of the single stock stuff. You know, I always enjoy it. I feel like we could chat the whole day, Nico, literally. Something I want to touch on in the notes where we were sort of prepping for what we were going to talk about today. You mentioned a concept called home bias. Now, on the last Satrix podcast, which I was with Kinsley, we talked about a lot of investment bias. And this one didn't come up, which is called home bias. I almost wonder if South Africans have the opposite. <laughs> I think that's something I almost wanted to ask you. You know, do we have this kind of this overall negativity about South Africa and hence we have offshore bias. We tend to think that offshore is a better idea than a local purchase. You know, do people look at LVMH and go, oh yes, I want that. And they just forget about Richmond. So the interesting thing is the home bias comes through in our de facto investment decisions, not our desire, but actually what we do with our investments. And so let, let me let me unpack that a bit because it is a fascinating concept. We we see a very strong home bias in where people in South Africa actually invest, not necessarily where they want to invest. I think if you ask you know any of your friends at a bri, uh, are you bullish on South Africa and do you think you should invest uh, half of your portfolio in South Africa? They might say no. No, you know there's a lot of headwinds, we face all this uncertainty, so I want to invest in uh, global markets. But what they actually do with their investments is they are predominantly investing locally. And where you tend to see that is on people's retirement funds and what they do with their long-term investing objectives. And part of the reason I think, and, and, and you know, there's, I, I don't know if necessarily the data or the answer to back this up in, in hard form, but what we do see, and there's certainly been studies from, from University of Pretoria, for example, that showed that people don't exercise or, or actually take the default when it comes to investing their retirement funds. And so, in other words, they don't, they don't actively decide what they want to do with their retirement investments. It's almost as if it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, this is something that I think of when I'm 60. I don't want to think of that now. I'll just take the default option. And a lot of times, these default options might mean that you are quite heavily exposed to local the local uh, market, as opposed to having a well-diversified global exposure. And so th that's my point, is that a lot of South Africans actually have a very high local exposure when it comes to their investment portfolio. And so what you need to do is you need to actually start asking the questions, where am I invested? What is the proportion of assets that I'm investing in? You know, where are they allocated? And certainly with your discretionary investment, you can actually start to build that some of that offshore exposure that you might not currently have in your retirement fund annuities or investment vehicles, uh, th those exposures, you can actually start to build that through your discretionary investments. And that's why I said, you know, certain locally listed feeder ETFs offer a very simple way of doing that and a very, very cost effective way. For example, just think about the MSCI World Index. Now this, you know, you, you're holding more than a thousand of the largest global companies in that portfolio. Now that trades on an ETF locally listed at a very, very low fee, very competitive fee of about 0.35%. Now, you have to ask yourself, well, if I can get that amount of global exposure with my RANDs without expatriating that or having all these, uh, you know, 
issues and hassle and costs involved in directly going offshore and buying those assets, well, why am I not doing that? And so, you know, that that I think people should should start asking themselves, do you have this home bias? Are you currently seeing most of your assets invest in South Africa de facto, even though you might argue, well, with my discretionary investing, I'm, I'm getting a portion of that, a higher proportion of my discretionary investing is going offshore. Well, ask yourself in totality, are you actually doing that? And so I would I would argue that, that a lot of uh, investors inadvertently have a home bias where they might actually not not fully realize that. Do as I say, not as I do, hey? Seems to be what's coming through there. Uh, Nico, this leads me into where I want to sort of finish up the discussion for the next few minutes. And that's touching on some of the concepts that you raised in that really good article that you wrote recently in Ghostmail around RAND hedging. Uh, there was something in there around the volatility paradox. So this is where we're going to get a little bit more technical. And I would encourage listeners to, you know, stretch themselves, like listen to the stuff, learn from it, Google it try and understand it. And if you've got questions, send them over email. I mean, Nico's a super busy guy, but I'm sure if I collated them and, and passed them across to him, you know, we may well be lucky enough to get an answer when he's got a moment. So I think moving into this, you know, the desire for offshore, the worries about the RAND, all of these things tend to create a scenario where funds can potentially try and hedge out their RAND exposure. Now, hedging is not free. If it was, we would all just do it. Life would be easy. Hedging generally requires a whole lot of different instruments, derivatives, whatever the case may be. These things come at a cost, which is why global markets teams inside banks, etc., make money, right? And that's why they like it when there's volatility in the market, because volatility drives trade, it drives flows, it drives hedging, it drives structures, and that's how they make a fee. So I think if we could, uh, you know, just touch on some of the concepts from your article, I'll leave it open-ended to you to touch on what you think is relevant here around, you know, do hedges always work? What is this volatility paradox? Like, what is the point you wanted to make there? So a lot of your listeners might be familiar with the concept of, of currency hedging, but for those that aren't, let me let me just try and summarize that very briefly, is whenever we talk about hedging, right, you are reducing your risk exposure. So if I say I want to have a hedge against the currency, what I mean is I put certain things in place that will uh, provide me with a counterbalance to that asset. So uh, a RAND hedge would simply look to neutralize the RAND in your portfolio. So let's say I hold um, Amazon as a stock, but I want to hedge the RAND. What I mean by that is then I want to get the US dollar returns of Amazon. I don't want to add the RAND's volatility because the RAND is unpredictable, right? This thing might go up in value, go down in value. Um, you want to remove that unpredictability in your global investment. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. And some of some of your listeners might have seen um, asset managers make the point and, and make it quite passionately that you need to, it's, it's almost incumbent on asset managers to hedge the RAND systematically. In other words, over the long term, you need to have some part of currency hedging. And the argument is mostly made because the local currency is so volatile. So think of it, the RAND is extremely volatile, right? It, it's, in fact, it ranks amongst the most volatile currencies globally very often. It's, it's, it's sort of one of the, typically one of the most volatile uh, currencies out there. So it seems prudent. It seems absolutely logical to say, well, it's this volatile currency. And if you want global exposure in your portfolio, well, you must surely hedge the RAND. Otherwise, you are just adopting all of that volatility in your portfolio. And why would you do that, right? So it seems like the most logical thing. But often, oftentimes in life, you know, the, 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 the logical thing might not be true. So, you know, your logic might actually fail you at times where the data simply does not support your argument. 
And so what we what we tried to do in that article that that you mentioned, and I certainly would encourage your your listeners to go read it, is we tried to show that super counterintuitively, not hedging the rand. In other words, allowing the rand in your portfolio to do its thing actually reduces volatility and actually increases return over time. It's it's almost paradoxical, right? And the the paradoxical nature of that comes from the fact that we think volatility is linear, the way that returns are linear. If I tell you uh, you hold three three stocks in your portfolio, stock A, B, and C. What's your expectation if I include stock D? Uh, what's the impact on your portfolio's return? Well, if stock D's return is minus 20%, that means you are necessarily reducing your portfolio's return, right? Because returns are linear. If I held a stock that is down 50%, well, there's no way that that stock can actually increase my portfolio return over that period. It will necessarily decrease it. It's linear. Volatility, though, is not linear. And what I mean by that is you might actually end up including a volatile asset in your portfolio, for example, like the RAND. But if the interactions between the RAND and other assets in your portfolio is, for example, negative, so in other words, the one goes up, the other goes down, you might actually counteract one another's volatility to reduce overall volatility. And so this is a bit paradoxical, but it's actually quite intuitive. If you think about how anti-noise cancelling headphones work, it 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 takes the, the the wavelength coming in of the noise coming in, and it just produces a counter wavelength to reduce that noise. So if you think about two waves that are negatively correlated, they can actually neutralize one another. And so having a volatile asset in your portfolio, if it is negatively correlated with our other assets, might actually end up reducing volatility. And so now the long story short is in our article, we just show that actually hedging out the RAND, so neutralizing the RAND in your portfolio of, for that offshore exposure, actually ends up increasing volatility. So in other words, RAND hedging increases volatility as opposed to decreasing it. And the great irony about this is the argument is always made that RAND hedging will decrease the volatility of your portfolio. You know, I've seldomly encountered someone at a briar that says, oh, you, you, you know, you must hedge the RAND because the RAND might strengthen. No one makes that argument, right? Everyone locally is more afraid of the RAND weakening and what that does to your investment portfolio. But the RAND hedging protects you from the RAND strengthening, not the RAND weakening, the RAND strengthening. So you're almost happy to say, well, I'll, I'll pay off, I'll pay some of, some of the upside that I get from RAND weakness through my offshore investment. I'll pay some of that just to reduce portfolio volatility. But what ends up happening is you pay some of that benefit you would have had when the RAND weakens you actually increase your portfolio's volatility. So it's a bit of a paradox thing. And I think, you know, once you look at the data, it is very clear. But you can always hear someone make a passionate argument for rand hedging that's not based on data. And we, we must try to avoid those things when it comes to investments. Take the emotion out of it uh, and the rational or, or the, the logical arguments out of it and look at what the data tells us. And if our logic doesn't square with the data, well, we must then revisit our logic. Yeah, Nico, that's fantastic. I'm going to leave it there with you this time around because I think we've covered a lot and I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you. I really enjoyed your last article in Ghostmail. I would certainly encourage the Ghostmail readers, the listeners to this podcast, go and check out all of the Satrix content on the platform. It's all really, really good. It's really high quality. I'm loving this partnership. I think you guys bring incredible insights to the audience. Uh, Nico, I just want to finish off with how people can find you. As I recall, last time we spoke, you broke my heart and reminded me that you are very much a LinkedIn man as opposed to Twitter. I'm assuming that is still the case. That is still the case. So if you if you do want to reach out, you can definitely reach out on, on LinkedIn. 
like you mentioned, you can we can we can always listeners can drop you a mail and we can get in touch that way. But yeah, LinkedIn would, would be my preferred angle of, of approach. There we go. Thank you so much, Nico. This has really been an absolute pleasure. Good luck out there in the markets to our listeners. The same to you and with navigating load shedding and just keep your wits about you. Focus on the data, as Nico says, and just remember that, you know, if you heard it at a bri and it was a very passionate, emphatic view, it's probably not 100% accurate. You need to think a bit deeper than that. And I'll leave you with that. Thank you very much.